we are, and if you have not noticed it, we are following the ministry, the earthly ministry of Christ in a chronological fashion, not so much in a biblical fashion as a chronological fashion, trying to follow it in the sequence of events as they occurred. Last week we looked at the first 11 verses of John chapter 2. Now we look at the last half of this chapter, beginning this morning reading in verse 12. John 2, verse 12, we'll read to the end of the chapter. After this, and of course that ties us back to what we covered last week, the first of Jesus' miracles, the turning of the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things from here. Make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, if you were alert when we read our responsive reading a moment ago, you remember this was the last of the verses that we read out of Psalm 69. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up again in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. We have just had the account of Christ's first miracle. Apparently, from what we read here, the first of many miracles now that he begins to do. I would have you notice in verse 12 the change of location that is mentioned. Notice that the whole kit and caboodle, Jesus, his mother, his brethren, and this would refer to his earthly brothers, or more precisely, half-brothers, the entire family, plus his disciples, now move to the city of Capernaum. Capernaum was a small town on the seashore just to the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and this place, Capernaum, will become what we would call the de facto headquarters of the earthly ministry of our Lord now for the next three years or so. Now that fact might surprise you. Most people, I suppose, if they weren't, had never really thought about it, would assume that most of Jesus' ministry took place down in Jerusalem, around the environment of the temple. 
I mean, that just seems to be what would, we would expect, what would be right. Remember that Jerusalem is down at the south end of Israel in the province known as Judea. Capernaum, on the other hand, is up in the north province known as Galilee, up on the north side of the Lake of Galilee. Now, that would be sort of like someone uh, living in Michigan coming down to Dallas to go to the temple. That's the idea here is that Jesus has left Capernaum way up in the north end of the, of the land to journey down to the south end of the land to go to Jerusalem and to attend the celebration of the Passover feast in Jerusalem at the temple. The fact is, is that most of Jesus' ministry took place way up at the north end, up around Capernaum, around the area of the Sea of Galilee. About the only time that he goes to Jerusalem is to celebrate one of the feast days. In other words, these trips to Jerusalem, about which we read one right here in our text this morning, these are more or less forays down to Jerusalem for a short period of time, most of the time for about a week, to attend this big celebration, and then he would go back to Galilee. That woke you up, I'm sure. (laughs) He would then return to Galilee. So you see that there's a lot of movement back and forth between where most of his ministry centered up north as opposed to down south where the feast days were held. And as a general rule, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us the story of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Oh, they tell about some of the trips to Jerusalem too, but the bulk of what they tell us is what he did up in the northern part of the land. John's gospel is sort of unique in this sense and stands out from the other synoptic gospels in the sense that John majors upon what happened down at Jerusalem. What happened there in Jerusalem around the temple generally during the celebration of one or another of these feasts. And here we see that happening here. That John tells us, he doesn't tell us much about what happened in Capernaum, you'll notice. What he wants to center our attention on is what now happens when Jesus, his whole family, and his disciples make their first trip down to Jerusalem. Now, he had been going to the Feast of Passover for a long time. Do you remember the story in Luke we read of what happened at his 12th? year when he was left behind, the family had gone down to the Feast of Passover, and Luke tells us that they had gone down every year. This was probably something Jesus had, a trip that he had made every year since the year of his birth. Since whenever they came back from Egypt after they fled, they had probably made this trip to Passover year after year after year. He had seen the conditions. He knew what went on there. But this trip is different in that this is the first time he is now going to Jerusalem after his public ministry has begun. Now he has entered into his earthly work, and something different is going to happen this time. Now, I saw a cartoon not long ago. Many of you are familiar with, um, especially the young people wearing these WWJD bracelets and T-shirts and all this stuff. For you old fogies like me, uh, WWJD means what would Jesus do? Now, that's an excellent question. It's a good, good question to ask. What would Jesus do? That's obviously what we ought to be doing. But in the cartoon, you were looking at the vestibule of a church. And they had all of this WWJD paraphernalia. Bracelets and t-shirts and all sorts of stuff that they were selling in the vestibule of the church. And this man was just throwing this stuff out on the floor and overturning the tables 
And the little caption says, what Jesus would do. I think that is extremely insightful, is that's probably exactly what Jesus would do. That he would be incensed at the church selling merchandise, making money on the phrase, what would Jesus do? That's exactly what he would do. He would have nothing to do with it. Now, if you think that's far-fetched, look what happens when Jesus makes his first trip to the temple after he has begun his earthly ministry. He finds what is going on there in the temple precinct, more than likely in what was called the court of the Gentiles, a very thriving commercial business. Two businesses this in particular are pointed out to us. First of all, there are the selling of animals, sheep, oxen, and doves. Now that business, we learned from historians, originally it started over there across the brook Hydron, over there sort of where the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, that direction. It originally started over there, but at some point it moved inside the temple precinct itself, self, that there were people selling these animals. Because, you see, Jews were now coming to celebrate Passover from all over the Roman Empire. Many of them coming on long journeys. Remember Paul on his third missionary journey? He was clear up in Greece, and he wanted to be back by Passover to celebrate the feast in Jerusalem. Now, of course, at the feast of Passover, you're supposed to have a lamb, aren't you? That's part of the celebration. You're supposed to have a lamb that you bring to the priest, and they kill it, and you go home and eat it. Now, how's Paul going to bring a lamb all the way from Greece? So as a convenience... As a service to those Jews who are coming in from far, far away places, there were these who had set up booths inside apparently the very courtyard of the temple itself and are selling sacrificial animals for the purposes, you see, of observing the feast of Passover. Of course, during this time of the year, it would be mainly lambs that were being sold. You can almost imagine the... Sounds of businesses that that is going on, you know. Get your lambs over here. Attention, temple shoppers. For the next ten minutes, ten percent off on your Passover lamb over here on aisle four. You know, that's the sort of thing that's going on right here in the courtyard of the temple. And if that's not enough, I mean, on top of the sounds of the hawking of the merchandise, you have the buying of the sheep, you have the lowing of the oxen. You also have these who are exchanging money. For you see, also during this feast, every Jewish male above the age of 20 was expected, was in fact commanded in the law of Moses, to give a half shekel tax to the temple. It was called the temple tax. You remember back in the days of Moses this originated? He was to number the males that were above the age of 20, and every one of them was to bring a half shekel to the temple, to the tabernacle in those days as an offering, as a gift. Well, that went on year by year. Now, the Jews said that they wanted this temple tax paid in a particular kind of, of coin. It was called a stator or a tetradrachma in some cases, and it was made of very pure silver. They wouldn't just take any money, in other words. They wanted the temple tax paid in this very pure silver coin. I suppose we could say in our society, be like saying, we won't take your greenbacks, we want silver dollars, that type of thing. So 
if you're coming again from a foreign land, from a foreign country, if you've ever made a trip outside this country, you know what I'm talking about. You've got to exchange your money from one currency to the other. So here in the environment of the temple courtyard itself, there are these money changers who are busily changing or exchanging currency from one denomination or one sort into the temple, the approved temple coin at a small service fee, of course. They weren't doing this for free, you understand. They had sort of a thriving business going on here in the temple. Well, what happens next is hardly the gentle Jesus meek and mild that we would expect and that we do encounter in many cases in the New Testament. But instead, our Lord makes him a small whip of cords and he begins to drive these larger animals out of the temple along with the ones who are selling them. Now, you could imagine the ruckus this made. If that wasn't enough, he also overthrows the money. Can you imagine pouring their, these money changers, pouring their money out on the floor and throwing their tables over, turning the tables over? I mean, this, this is making a ruckus. He is literally driving them out of the temple. Now, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record a very similar event, except they place it at the end of Jesus' ministry, at the last visit to Jerusalem during the Feast of Passover. It's very likely that Jesus, well, John records three visits to Jerusalem during the Passover. There's probably a fourth in John 5, verse 1, that's mentioned it's an unnamed feast. My best guess is that Jesus went to Jerusalem four times during the three or a little over three-year period that his earthly ministry was comprised of. In other words, his earthly ministry began shortly before the Passover that we're reading about, and then there would be four in all, three others. Matthew, Mark, and Luke also add that on the last trip to Jerusalem, shortly before he was betrayed and crucified, he also did much the same thing. And some scholars believe that, well, these are just telling the same story and one's placing it up early, one's placing it late. I don't think that's the case. I think there were actually two times that this happened. Over in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he quotes Isaiah 56, verse 7, where he says these words, Shall not my father's house be a house of prayer, and ye have made it a den of thieves? Now notice that's not what John records here. Here he states, You have turned my father's house into a den or into a house of merchandise. In other words, you're busy, you've turned the temple, my father's house, into a store. That would be a rough equivalent in our day. Now notice it's very similar, but it is different and it is distinct. And further, it's the first time in John's gospel that he refers to God as his father. First time that Jesus uses this phrase that we'll meet many, many times now, my father. This is my father's house. And that gives you some insight into his actions here. You who are sons, who have fathers, if you were to go over to your father's house and find that the robbers were ransacking it, what would you do? You'd run them out, wouldn't you? If you found that an, uh, shall we say, inappropriate activity was taking place in your father's house, you, as the son, would do something about it. And that is precisely what Jesus is doing here. He is laying claim to having this rather unique, oh, did I say rather unique, absolutely unique relationship. What he will say in John 3, 
God gave His what? His only begotten Son. The one and only Son of God in this sense. You and I may be sons of God, children of God in an adoptive sense. The angels may be referred to as the children of God in a creative sense. But Jesus is the only, the uniquely begotten Son of God. He is a Son in the truest sense, and He's the only Son. And He is in His Father's house, and He is incensed with what He sees going on in His Father's house. Now, one would expect that an action like this is going to get some attention. Jay Wimberly, one time, was talking about a lady in his church that went shopping at Walmart. And when she went out through the line to leave, she slipped and fell. But as she slipped and fell, said they had one of those gumball machines, you know. When uh, she slipped and fell, she fell and kicked over the gumball machine. It broke and gumballs went all over the store. So he said, we have an expression down here in Winter Haven that anytime something happens, it just caused all kinds of ruckus. We say, they kicked over the gumball machine. Well, Jesus kicked over the gumball machine. I mean, you start throwing the money changers' money out on the floor, throwing their tables off, driving the animals out of the temple, you're going to get some reaction, and immediately the Jews come upon him. And notice their question. Isn't this interesting? They're not saying now... You know, you're right. We really shouldn't be doing this. They have no question regarding the propriety of what Jesus has done, whether he's right and they're wrong or vice versa, or whether this is just or unjust. Notice their question, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Basically, the first question they wanted to know, they wanted to check his credentials. Who authorized you? Not whether it's right or wrong, what you do. Have you ever wanted to meet this guy Dooley? I mean, I really, I would like to meet this guy Dooley. You know the one they say, Dooley authorized? I'd like to meet that guy so I could get him to authorize me, so I could say I'd be Dooley authorized. That is one of the great questions that goes on. And even in reform circles, by the way, we want to make sure that whoever does anything is Dooley authorized. You know, what's their authority? What's their bloodline? What's their parentage? Where where are they coming from? Who laid hands on them? Who baptized them, to use the language of Corinth? We want to check their credentials. You got the right membership card in your pocket. And that's what they're asking Jesus. Who authorized you to do what you've done? You've got to show us a sign before you can come do something like this. Notice that they're avoiding the question completely of whether what he's done is right or wrong. They're questioning his authority and his right to do it. Well, they want a sign. Men today still want a sign. We'll believe in God if He'll give us a sign. What they really want is what D.A. Carson called a domesticated God. They've tamed Him. they put Him in the cage. They're like you'd tame a lion. And you can get Him to do some stunts for you, some tricks for you. Whenever you need your faith being bolstered, God just do another trick. Do us another stunt. And then we'll believe on you. And it better be a good one. Better be one that we've never seen before and nobody else has ever done because, you know, anything less than that won't bring faith out of us. So you better do a good stunt. You you know, sort of like Evil Knievel. You better jump across the Hell's Canyon. And then we'll trust you. 
Do you understand what kind of people, if that's the kind of faith that God's people had, what you have turned God into? And do you understand the shallowness of that kind of faith that rests on signs? And so Jesus, true to form, every time somebody demanded of him a sign, he never gave them one. It is strange sometimes that people demanded signs of Jesus immediately after he had just given them one. A little later in John 6, he takes five loaves of bread, a few fish, feeds a multitude. Feeds 5,000 people. And no sooner do they get back across the lake than the Jews come to him wanting a sign. You see, the human heart, if it rests on signs alone, can never be satisfied. You always want another sign, and you want a better sign. To give you some insight into how what makes us tick. And Jesus, when he is demanded of a sign, never gives men a sign. He simply says, well, I'll just give you one. It's what he calls elsewhere the sign of Jonah. That is, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, you want a sign, the only sign I'm going to give you, really, the one sign is the resurrection from the dead. And by the way, that's the same sign that he points them to here in our text. Very consistent. You want a sign? Here's the big one. Here's the one that if you believe this one, you believe all the rest. And it has to do with the resurrection from the dead. Now, it doesn't sound like it. It sounded like Jesus was saying to them that I'm a master carpenter, a master builder. Why, you see this temple? I can build a structure like this. You tear this one down and I can build it in three days back to its glory. That's what they heard. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Now, that didn't sound like it had anything to do with resurrection from the dead, does it? If you had been standing there in that day, standing there in the temple itself, you would have thought he was speaking of that building. Now, John's Gospel, by the way, gives us a number of cases where people misunderstand the words of our Lord. And they misunderstand him usually, by the way, because they take him in the most literal sense. I'm saying this as sort of a jab in the side of those who say that the only rule of interpreting Scripture is always to take Scripture in its most literal, basic, physical meaning. If that's true, the Jews are in fact taking Jesus' word in their most literal sense, and they are completely missing it. In the next chapter, a man by the name of Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and again, Nicodemus takes the words of Jesus, ye must be born again, takes them in the most literal, physical sense, and doing so, he completely misses what Jesus is saying. Jesus doesn't always speak in the most literal sense. Sometimes he uses very symbolic and figurative language. And part of the problem of interpretation is figuring out when he's speaking literally and when he's not. Oh, I could say much more about this and we wouldn't get to go home. So let me get off of it. You can go to uh, the last discussion that Jesus has with his disciples where he's talking about going away. And they can't figure out what he's talking about. Because half the time when Jesus talks to them, he does use this very figurative language. And they're not sure he's talking about really going away or just symbolically going away. And finally, at the end, I believe it's of John uh, 16, one of them says, well, now we get it. Now we see that you really mean that you're going away. 
And you'll see what I mean, that Jesus does use language in several senses here, and he does so here. Now, in Matthew and Mark, at the trial of Jesus, there are two false witnesses that are brought, and they both testify that he said, I am able to destroy the temple and build it again in three days. Now, what's interesting is Matthew and Mark, neither one record where Jesus said that. Only the Gospel of John tells us the exact circumstances and the exact quote of our Lord where he does, in fact, say something like that. But notice these two men, says Matthew and Mark, were false witnesses. They didn't tell the truth. Because you will notice they shaded what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, I am able to destroy the temple and build it again in three days. He said, destroy the temple. You destroy the temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. They put their own twist on what Jesus was saying. Now, to the Jews that heard this being said, to them this was ludicrous. Why, they'd been refurbishing the temple for 46 years. How in the world could a man build it again in three days? It was absolutely, in their view, impossible for such a thing to happen. But, of course, as John relates, after the resurrection of Christ, they understood that the temple of which he spoke was not that earthly temple in Jerusalem. It was the temple of his body. Now, that basically is a layout of the text itself what the text itself contains. I want to, however, for a few moments this morning, try to apply. It is still morning. Yes, it is. Still morning for a few more minutes here. Let's try to apply what the text is saying to our situation, to our circumstances, and to our day. First of all, let's notice all this temple talk. I realize that we don't have an earthly temple There's no sacred spot to which we go to assemble ourselves at an earthly temple. But let us consider what Jesus means when he says the temple of his body. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Also, I should caution you, you, there are places in the New Testament that the church corporately is referred to as the temple of the living God. And even where Christians individually are spoken of as temples of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwelling them. But neither of those seems to be what Jesus is saying. He is speaking of himself and of his physical body in a very real sense as being a temple. Now, what, he, what, it was, what made a temple a temple? I'm not talking necessarily in Jewish terms, but even in pagan terms. What did it mean when you called a place a temple? Well, a temple was a place where God, or in some cases these pagan gods, manifested their presence. It was a place where there was a point of contact between deity and humanity. A temple, in its most basic definition, is a dwelling place For God. Do you remember what David, the sort of mental thing he went through when he first got into his mind, the idea of building a temple for God? He says, you know, here I am dwelling in a nice home, got solid walls, roof, and said, God's still dwelling over there in a tent. So he had it in his heart to build God a permanent house like he had a permanent house. 
He was not allowed to do it, but Solomon, his son, of course, built this solid structure. The tabernacle itself was a temporary structure, moved from place to place, made of, you know, skins and whatnot. But notice the idea. David says, I'm living in a solid house. God is dwelling in a tent. Do you see the idea that a tent or the tabernacle that preceded it was so? Because it was a place where God dwelt. God came down there. God manifested his presence there. And if you wanted to go to God, if you wanted to meet with God, commune with God, you went to where God was. And throughout the Old Testament age, when a man went, when a man went to appear before God, he went to a spot. He went to a physical place. He went to that which they called the temple. If you ask a Jew living in Jesus' day, where does God live? He'd say right over there. Up there on Mount Zion, on that spot called the temple. But did God really dwell there? You know, even Isaiah says God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. God doesn't really dwell. He says God, in fact, sits in the heavens. He sets his feet on earth. Some of you men are going to go home today. You're going to be weary, tired from all this heavy hearing and listening that you're doing this morning. You'll just be worn, tuckered out, and you're going to sit in your easy chair, and you're going to pull up a stool, and you're going to prop your feet up on the stool. That's the language of Isaiah when he says that God sits in heaven, and he sets his feet on earth. He uses earth as his footstool. Now, that's a pretty big God, isn't it? And the question is, if you had a God like that, who sits in the heavens and rests his feet on the earth, how in the world is somebody like you and I going to build him a house to live in? That the body of Jesus Christ is indeed a temple. You beginning to see why? Because of what John has told us back in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a little later in John 1, and the Word was what? This Word that was God was made flesh and dwelt. And literally in the Greek, the word therefore dwelt is tabernacled. The Word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. You see, the divine Word of God, the eternal Word of God, took upon himself the form of a servant, as Paul will tell us in Philippians, took upon himself the form of man. Divinity, as it were, was clothed upon, put on a tent. And by the way, the term tabernacle is then picked up by the New Testament writers like Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 as a symbolic way of speaking of man's body. We have this tabernacle that we're wearing. I don't know about you, my tabernacle's wearing out, I've noticed. It's getting old. It's uh, about to fall apart. God. Tabernacle in human flesh, in a human body. There was a point of contact in the person of Jesus Christ where God and man met. You say, I need a temple. I need a temple to worship God. I need a place where God will manifest himself. I point you to his son, Jesus Christ. For a temple was not only a place where God dwelt, it was a place where priests worked. Priests representing others before God, offering sacrifices, offering 
prayers, interceding. We talked a few weeks ago about how Aaron at one point interceded and stood between the wrath of God and the rest of Israel in several occasions. There is the idea of offering up the incense, which was a type of the prayers of God's people coming up before his throne. And if you would say, well, I need a priest, I need someone to intercede, I need an intercessor, a mediator to stand between me and God, well, I've got one for you. As Paul would write Timothy and say, there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man, Christ Jesus. Isn't it interesting? He lays stress on the humanity of Christ, the man, Christ Jesus. Oh, he's the God-man. He is the divine Son of God, but he's just as human as you and I. He's in a human body. God and man meeting in that temple, if you will. And then, of course, a temple was a place where sacrifice was offered to God. And God sent His Son, the divine Son of God, into this world to offer a sacrifice for you and me. But how in the world can divinity suffer? You ever thought about that? How do you make God hurt? Well, let's keep His food from Him. That'll make Him get hungry. No. He never hungers. He never hurts. Let's kill Him. can't kill Him, can you? can't take away His life. can't wound Him. How do you hurt God? How is it possible that God could become a sacrifice? Oh, but let this divine Son of God embrace a human body, a human nature. Let Him inhabit this tabernacle of a body, this temple. And now He can suffer. Now He can get hungry. Now he can feel the lash. Now he can feel the plucking of the beard from his cheek. Now he can feel the nails in his hands and the crown of thorns on his head. Now God can die. The old theologians put it this way, that he had to be man in order to suffer. But he had to be God in order that his sufferings have sufficient value covered the sins of his people. You see it? He must be made man. Sacrifice has got to be made in the temple, folks. And in this case, in the temple of his body. So there's all this temple work going on. And I say this temple work with tongue in cheek because that's what the Mormons out west always referred to what they did down at their Mormon temple in Salt Lake City and Temple Square. I was... This sounds, I won't even say it. Oh, well. When that tornado went right through downtown Salt Lake City, I was holding my breath, hoping, (laughs) thinking maybe it's done a downtown beautification project of relocating the Mormon temple somewhere else. But the Mormon temple work is where they go in and are baptized by the dead. Their marriage is sealed for eternity, neither of which have anything to do with anything ever done in the temple. They're supposedly restoring first century New Testament Christianity when nothing of the sort is ever seen in the scripture. But that's their temple work. Well, Jesus' temple work is of a little bit different nature. It's what took place on that cross. That's his temple work. And then secondly, and we dare not miss this, do you see the incongruity, the incongruity of the worship of God with the profit motive of men? Making merchandise, making money 
off of the things of God. Now, I'd have you notice here that Jesus is not in any sense saying that these men are evil for providing this service, for selling animals to these travelers who are coming in from foreign lands, to these men who are exchanging money, their money, into the currency that's acceptable there in the temple. Jesus is not condemning the activity. He's condemning the propriety of doing it in the temple. As my parents used to tell me and drum this lesson into me, there's a time and a place for everything, and it'd usually be followed by these words, and this is not the time nor the place. There is a sense of propriety here. That's not what you do in the temple of God. That may be fine to do out there on the hillsides of Jerusalem, but not in here. In here, it ought to be the sounds of reverence, the sounds of worship, the sounds of prayers being ascending to the ear of God Almighty. And instead, it's the merchandiser hawking his wares, selling his good, making his shekel. Oh my, I wonder what would Jesus do? And we see some of the more extreme examples today. Just turn on TBN. We see preachers hawking their goods. No doubt got a card in their pocket like old paladin of old. How Bible will travel. You know, hired guns selling out to the, the almighty dollar. But oh, my friend, we see it in so many circles and it is so infestuous today that... Uh, we, we sometimes, I'm afraid, are so expecting this to be the case that we let our guard down. Let me, let me give you some examples. Even in our circles, in, among reform people, sovereign grace people, Calvinists, whatever word you want to ascribe to that, I, just a few years ago, there was a conference here in the Memphis area, I won't name names, but uh, it was being held over at a church that would seat about 1,500 people, and they sold tickets to go to this conference for about $75 a piece. The reason I know what was going on is because we had a couple here that was interested in going, and they called over and found out what the price would be to go to this series of meetings, and uh, it was a little steep. They hadn't exactly budgeted for 75 bucks a piece, and uh, the lady they were talking to said, well, yes, but there's standing room in the back for half price. You can stand. Now, you think I'm making this up. No, I'm not, that uh, there is this charge to attend these services in the church. It was a seminar, I realize. And for half price, you can stand if you can't afford to sit. And I'm thinking, you know, wait a minute. First of all, the propriety to say that we're going to have ministers of the gospel come and minister, and you're going to have to pay. And then secondly, some of you who can afford it can pay and sit, and some of you who can't can stand in the back. That all kinds of scriptural principles are being broken here. Whatever happened when Jesus said to his disciples, freely you have received, freely give. Now we know, I mean, we're not stupid. We know that we've benefited from books and it costs money for books. We know that we benefit from these things that are tangible. We know that costs money. We understand that. And we're not, I've never seen Christians ever balk. At, at legitimate expenses for things, but my friend, for the preaching of the gospel, 
And whatever happened to the principle laid down in James about treating the rich man a little differently than you treat the poor man? You know, one fellow comes in, he's got plenty of money, we make sure he gets the good seat, you poor folks can stand in the back. So, as a result, and I could go on and on, I mean, that's, that's a mild, I mean, that kind of thing goes on over and over again. In, in, in our circles, I've had, I, I, I'm embarrassed to almost tell you this, but when people have invited me to come speak at their church, at least a third of the time, I'm asked, what is your fee? Because that's what they're expecting, is to have me say, well, I, you've got to pay me so much to come. That's what they're used to. That's what they've heard before. Now, I hope I'm not surprising you by saying that I tell them I have no fee. Not asking for anything. You know, if you want to do something, that's fine, but that's not necessary. I will come one way or the other. If I come at all, it will not be because you're promising me this money. May I say that I have been delighted that over the years our church has made that our policy of how we handle things here. We send out newsletters. We have a newsletter that goes out to about 2,000 addresses across the country. We never ask for a penny. It's all done without charge. We have people uh, who receive our tapes. Uh, We are sort of unique in that we ask nothing for our tapes. The only thing I've had people say, well, how much do they cost? How much do you want? Never. They're free. That's a ministry of our church. The only thing we ask of people that get our tapes, if you could, when you're through with them, um, tired, you know, you've done with them, mail them back to us so we can erase them and use them again. But if you've got other people to pass them on to, pass them on and don't send them back. That's fine. Now, to be quite honest, we have people all over the country that have sent us funds who have a recipients of our tape ministry. If they want to do that, that's fine. But never is it even suggested that they do so. It's free. Because we have freely receive. Therefore, we have a mandate to freely give. Well, I better get off that hobby horse. But, oh, my friend, do you understand how often this is violated today? Money-making schemes, profiteering, going on in the name of Christ, in the name of Christian ministry, no less. In fact, it's almost gotten to the point that you can take the word ministry. Somebody says, we have such and such ministry. Take the word ministry out, substitute the word business, and you're real close to what's really going on. We've just taken business, and because it has some connection with Jesus and some connection with Christianity, we then label it ministry. I'm afraid these folks probably thought they had a nice ministry, sacrificial animal ministry, money-changing ministry. Jesus didn't see it that way. And notice this temple was just the type the foreshadowing of the real one. The real one is Jesus and his body. That's what John is telling us here in this text. That's the real temple. You say, where do I really meet God? You don't meet him there in Jerusalem. You meet him in the person of Jesus Christ. What sacrifice will atone for my sin and propitiate the wrath of God? It's not the one those priests offered there on the great altar in the temple in Jerusalem. It's the sacrifice our Savior offered there at Calvary. That's the real one, you see. But Jesus is looking at the pretend one, if you will, the type. 
And because he sees it desecrated, he drives them out. Can you imagine how much more so, to use the language of Hebrews, how much more so Jesus would be incensed when such enters in to the real temple? The hawking of the gospel. Sue was playing, I almost want to jump up and shout, playing a mighty fortress a moment ago. Do you realize what touched off the Protestant Reformation? What made Luther, who wrote that hymn, nail his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Church, is when the old monk Tetzel came to town trying to raise funds for St. Peter in Rome, selling indulgences, telling the people that they could get their relatives out of purgatory if they just paid the Catholic Church enough. In fact, he told them that before you hear the, the clink of the coins hitting the bottom of the box, your relatives will be out of their suffering in purgatory. Turning the gospel of Jesus Christ into a money-making, fun-raising scheme. And that's what Luther was standing against. And what he banked and bet his life on was that that was not pleasing to God. Well, I've got to get off of this. Did you notice as well the fact that two times here in this text that John relates that after Jesus' resurrection they put a lot of things together that they didn't know before? Jesus, of course, after his resurrection, opened their minds, we have said on a couple of occasions, that they understood the Scripture. We read this morning, Brother Paul led us out of Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is one of those texts, along with texts like Isaiah 53 and so forth, that the early church read those Psalms, like Psalm 69, and saw immediately that this speaks of Jesus. These are the very words that Jesus used in some cases. These are the things that Jesus said. This is what was going on, the fulfillment of this Psalm. When it said there in that last verse, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, what John is saying, then we put it together after it's all over. Of course that's what was going on. He's the fulfillment of that text. And then notice that they understood also after his resurrection in verse 21 and 22 that after the resurrection they understood that when he said destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up, it wasn't that earthly temple he's talking about. It was the temple of his own body. You remember Jesus said, I'll give you the spirit, the paraclete, and he will bring all things to your remembrance. Here's an example of the disciples' memory being quickened by the Spirit so that they understood what they didn't understand at the time. And then lastly, it's no longer morning. Lastly, false faith. That's how our text ends, and I would not be doing justice to the text if I didn't close with this. There at that feast... When the multitudes saw the miracles that he performed, many believed on him. Now, John, the same John that wrote that, is the same John that tells us a little later in John chapter 3 that God gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you say, well, these folks, they believed on Jesus. And John says over here, anybody who believes on Jesus got everlasting life. My friend, what John is trying to tell us is that not all faith is saving faith. For here was a kind of faith. These men saw the works. They saw the miracles. And they were convinced that something was going on here. But literally in the Greek, 
It says they trusted in him, but he did not entrust himself to them. They believed on him, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. Now I ask you a question. Are you saved if Jesus does not commit himself to you? Absolutely not. The saving thing is Jesus, the Savior, committing Himself to you. Saying before God, He's one of mine. If He denies you before God, you can be sure it's because you didn't truly believe on Him now. Now you say, well, I'd like an example of these that believed on Jesus but to whom Jesus did not commit Himself. Those that believe, but it wasn't saving faith. We'll just read on in chapter 3 and you see Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night saying, we know that you've got to be somebody because no man could do these miracles except God be with him. There's exactly a case of a man who believed on Jesus, believed he was a teacher sent from God, all right, because of all the miracles. And what does Jesus say to him? Except you be born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. He's not in... He's not a true believer. There's something deficient in Nicodemus' faith, as you see as you read on in John chapter 3. Now, I bring all that up to warn you that saving faith is more than just nodding your head to a verse of Scripture. Oh, it's that all right. It is to receive the testimony of Scripture. It's more than just nodding your head to believing a particular miraculous work of our Lord. Now, it is that. If you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then you're not saved. But notice the text says that he didn't commit himself to them. Why? Because he knew all men. He didn't need anybody to testify of what was in man because he knew. What was in man? I want to leave you with this thought. My friend, he knows what's in your heart. He knows whether you're true or whether you're false, whether you're the genuine article, the real deal, or whether you're fake or phony. Now, I may not know. Boy, you can pull the wool over my eyes. I've had the wool pulled over my, my eyes so many times I can't even count. You can fool everybody here this morning. You can even fool yourself. That's the amazing thing. But you can't fool him. He knows. And in the day of judgment, he won't need me to come up and say, saying to Jesus, I want to tell you about this fellow right here. He doesn't need that. He knows. Jesus said to Peter after his resurrection, met him there at the lake side, Peter, do you love me? More than these. Peter kept saying, yeah, Lord, I, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Three times, as he had denied him three times. And then finally, Peter replies very and very, listen, very astutely. Lord, thou knowest all things. You know that I love you. My friend, you can sing, Oh, how I love Jesus to your blue in the face. But He knows. He knows. May He enable us to know. 
May we not be deceived, thinking we're something when we're nothing. May our eyes be open to see the true state of our soul. I'm not trying to rob anybody of their assurance, their confidence before God, unless it's false. Unless it's fake. Are you real? Do you truly believe on Jesus Christ? Does your life manifest the fruits of one who truly believes on Jesus Christ? May we be honest. May we not deceive ourselves. Let us pray. Bless us, Lord, with an understanding heart, with an eye that is able to discern our own condition, our own heart, for our heart is deceitful. It lies to us. It tells us peace, peace, when there is no peace. Lord, we want to hear from you. Lord, if I'm deceived, I want to know it. I want to go through this life deluded, thinking I have something when I have nothing. May you cause me to examine my own heart this day and take stock where I am. And may you do it with us all. Father, this verse ought to cause us to tremble that many who saw those miraculous things believed. And yet our Lord did not commit himself to us. Oh, Father, may we not rest short of that hope that we have some evidence that Christ is ours and we are His. That there is fruit in our lives born by His grace. That we are new creatures. Not only do we believe in a resurrection of Himself from the grave, but we have experienced a a resurrection ourselves from death unto life. And we are new creatures. Father, may we not be content with anything else. Help us, Father, to know the truth about you, about Christ, and about our own hearts. Lord, may you encourage us where we need encouraging. May you comfort us. May you encourage us. May you give, Father, assurance to every genuine child this day. But Lord, may you destroy false confidence, false assurance. Let men not rest in that which is a lie. May we be serious about your word. Bless us as we sit before you, as we think on these things. May it not soon leave us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.